This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. I'm joined by Gary Abrahams, theatre maker and director, and actor Grant Cartwright, um, to talk about Angels in America, or to give it its full title, Angels in America, A Gay Fantasia on National Themes. Uh, It's a play in two parts, part one, Millennium Approaches, and part two, Perestroika. And Gary, this play has such enormous significance. It's been described as one of the great masterpieces of uh, of modern theatre. I would agree with that. It certainly is one of the great contemporary masterpieces. And it's interesting, I mean, but what I've realised putting this production on now is that there's my generation, generations above me, yes, very much so, but there are still new generations yet to discover the piece. So I'm really looking forward to putting it on and, you know, getting a young audience in and, and having them discover it for the first time. I mean, I first discovered it when I was 17 years old, which was a long time ago. <laughs> Grant, had you seen the the play before? Because I know it's been, for example, adapted by HBO as a miniseries. Uh, and, but it, to my knowledge, there hasn't been a, a stage production of it in Melbourne or many places around the country. Uh, Black Swan in Perth last mm. year did part one, for example. And but- a few years ago, Belvoir in Sydney, uh, which I was around for, but I, I didn't see the play. Um, uh, HBO miniseries was the first um, time that I had come across it at all. Um, and it, yeah, I mean, it, it really, it struck me as something really incredible, um, an incredible story, incredible characters. But it wasn't really until um, Gary approached me about this particular production that I jumped into the world and realised just how absolutely incredible this is as a piece of art, as just kind of um, kind of political and social comment and how incredibly um, joyous the play is as well in the face of all the adversity that goes on in the world. Now, it's set in the, the 1980s. It's a response to the AIDS crisis. It's a response to the lack of response from the Reagan government at the time. So there's uh, certainly an, an enormous amount of anger driving the play but it's so much more than than just anger as we've heard there's there there is love there is grief it seems to to be a play or plays that runs the full gamut of human emotion oh it absolutely does i mean but it's interesting when you sort of say anger because i think there's definitely a lot of anger in me at the moment in terms of things that are going on in the world um here in australia and overseas and uh i can very easily tap into the sort of uh, ferocious you know uh vitriol that tony kushner is writing with as a response against conservative politics, um, particularly Reagan, Reagan politics at the time. And one of the big themes of the play is time and how time isn't linear, how we keep spiralling back on ourselves as a society. You know, we, we tend to think of history as being the sort of linear progression, and it's not. We, re- we return again and again and again to the same places. And I think the play, when it was written, you know, in 1990, 1991, it ends on such a hopeful note. And for the past 25 years, I think it was quite hopeful. You know, we really felt like the left was progressing and winning, um, you know, uh, both overseas and here in Australia. And suddenly, 25 years after the play was written and first performed, um, we seem to be back at square one. But we still have that, that, that incredible sense of hope at the moment as well. I mean, um, you know, there's some incredible lines uh, from the play that could be said um, today, like at all, you know, and 
we have like we are citizens. We are uh, we won't be ignored. We won't die secret deaths anymore. You think of you think of Chechnya. You think of um, marriage equality here in Australia. Like we will be citizens. I mean, that's what part of that fight is about. And I mean, the the turnout at the rally um, last week and the, uh, you know here in Melbourne alone is there. There's the hope. And what I love about Angels in America, and particularly. I, um, I play Pryor, who is a man who has real, no real reason for hope in this particular time in this world, but he has it and he fights for it and he fights for what he believes in and, and literally his life is what he's fighting for. And so that's a really um, it's a really incredible kind of journey to go on that the audience comes along with as well. So they do experience the lows of this world, but the heights are so joyous and magical that um, it really kind of is a bit of a transcendental experience, I will say. Well, I've never seen a production of it, so I'm really looking forward to sitting down in 45 downstairs when it, when it opens next week and watching uh, this play unfold. This, it, it's taken on almost mythical stature. I've, I've seen the HBO series uh, and I know its its scope and scale and its drama, yeah. but there is nothing like the experience of live theatre to begin with. Absolutely. I mean, I think the play far transcends the... I mean, I, I love the miniseries. I think the play, though, works completely differently and there's things that he's able to do as a theatrical dramaturg, Tony Kushner, when he wrote it, that you can't do on film, that you can do on stage. Um, the other thing that's really interesting with this play is, yes, it has achieved this myth- mythical status. Um, because of what it calls for, there's so much surrealism and magic realism in it um, that, you know, big main stage companies across the world, when they do it, do it in all its full, full glory. But when it was first performed, it was performed in the 99-seat theatre in San Francisco. You know, angels crashing through roofs, all of that. So do it, this production at 45, for me, was a real chance to take it back to its roots. And how do you achieve, you know, in, in poor theatre terms, this is an independent show, how do you achieve that theatrical magic um, that the, the play calls for without you know pyrotechnics and and all sorts of things yeah it's not like you have a a fifty thousand dollar budget for the set and costumes for example. <laughs> certainly not but i but i will say i mean we, we're in production week at the moment and i think some of the magic that we are creating through the simple um you know through simple theater is is really taking my breath away yeah certainly and i mean you know i may regret saying this but sometimes money can get in the way and certainly if you don't have the resources to achieve some of the incredible theatricality of this show then your imagination has to kick into overdrive and you have to be problem solvers and inevitably the the result that you come up with i find is so much more interesting than the obvious or than the first thought or than you know what you wish you could do because you've really earned this incredible kind of left turn that you make in these kind of shows well look i would absolutely agree that money can get in the way it's one of the reasons why i come back time and time again to independent theatre because there is something about the spirit of independent theatre that is sometimes lost on a main stage production. When a main stage production, it may have kind of budget and great actors, but somehow there can be a not a sense of mediocrity that, that creeps in, but a sense of of safeness, yeah. for example. And everything can seem so like clinical or something, like everyone has their role and you must stay on that grid and you move forward and forward like side by side, whereas here, there's, I mean, this play, there's such a chaos in this play and what with we, we, this group of people we've banded together to create something really important and meaningful and 
fun and so you know we're we're all kind of involved in so many different elements that really pulls us closer together which i think inevitably makes a more interesting and kind of show it's not safe at all you know this is two plays um and they're two big plays with a lot of demands and we have an extraordinary cast including actors of the caliber of helen morse you know i mean she's one of i i think one of australia's leading actresses Definitely. both in film and stage um brian lipson is also in the cast who i know a lot of melbourne audience members sort of know there's we're all actors, you know, who came together for six weeks to kind of put on this massive work. There's nothing safe about it. You know, we're absolutely teetering on the edge of uh, wonderful theatrical... Um, what's the word? <laughs> Chaos? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, but, it's, but it's wonderful, and it's been such a pleasure. And it's something that we are, sh- are sharing with audiences. Like, this isn't for us, as, uh, so to speak. Like, this play is such a conversation that... And the space that we've created in an incredible um, set design with, by Dan Barber and all our other designers is it's such a intimate world where you know this we're right up close to you and it's for you guys it's for us it's for everyone to just kind of experience because like you said it's, it hardly ever gets done and you, and you so seldom get a chance these days to really immerse yourself in something this epic you know, it's about sort of four and a half, five hours of material all up, but audiences do have the chance to kind of see both parts separately. You don't have to see it all at once. Although there is something about that idea of it, it's like when you get into festival mode uh, during the, something like Fringe or the Melbourne International Arts Festival, uh, uh, where you just go, right, I'm I'm going to go to the theatre for six hours. Well, that's right. And, and taking yourself outside the ordinary, but uh, for if you're feeling slightly lazier like me, yeah, seeing it over two separate <laughs> nights, for example, could be wiser. But, but that's it. I mean, you know, you look at the festival program you have taylor max 24 hour um kind of event coming up and then you know things like we've had before like cloud street you know that's a you know that's a a commitment to kind of see but these worlds are so incredible and they do come along so rarely that if i wasn't in the show i would be definitely seeing them back to back but yeah part one is on what it can be you can see one night part two the next night or come on the weekends and see them both or and hopefully yeah. come back and do it all it's been 24 <laughs> years since melbourne audiences have had the chance to see these works and i can promise you that it's going to be at least that long before you'll get to see it again because there's a reason that companies don't do these works <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things i love that about how gary has cast a show is margaret mills is in this as well and who was in the original may remember production. yeah she was in the original mtc production of both parts in the 90s and so so the angel is back because there is we still have so much work to do. This is what I love about it. So the original angel is back. I mean, you know, I think about it in this kind of terms, you know, in the late 90s we had Pauline Hanson came along and then we got rid of her. Like she disappeared, lots of, you know, and now, and now she's back with a vengeance in the Senate and it's like there is, the time has turned. We're back at this starting point. And so the angel has come back to let us know that, we didn't do it right. We didn't work it out well enough. We so need more angels, angels with flaming swords, perhaps. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that's incredibly timely about angels in America is that one of the characters in the play is the uh, the lawyer Roy Cohn, who kind of like was part of the McCarthy era, who was this rabid attack dog who trained Trump. So now, kind of Cohn's heir is kind of president of the USA. So again, there's these kind of links between decades, between eras, between moments of unspeakable moments in history Absolutely. that are playing out before our eyes again. So it makes this play even so much more timely, yeah. and uh, certainly, I think, will give so many people a chance to to channel kind of some some grief and anger and rage, um, and perhaps leave the the theatre in the empowered in the way that great art does empower you. 
Yeah, Ab- absolutely. I mean, when Cameron Lukey, who's, who's the producer of the show, um, first approached me about Angels, uh, that was the first thing that came to mind was Trump and his connection to Roy Cohn. And where I thought, yeah, absolutely, this play needs to be done now. And it's extraordinary. You kind of look at Roy Cohn and you see the link between Trump and how Trump goes about his business. One of the things that Roy Cohn learned from McCarthy was to tell the big lie, that if you're going to lie, you have to do it really big. And never, never back down, you know. And uh, and Roy taught that to Trump, and we see that in full action, you know, with the way Trump has sort of run his presidency. It's yeah, it's it's, it's ex- extraordinary. Brian Lipson plays Roy Cohn, and I think it is um, it's just just a joy to watch. Terrifying <laughs> and Terrifying. hilarious. Like that's the thing. Like you, you, as bad as Roy Cohn is as a human being, there is some hilarious moments that he's engaged in and this is, it really makes you kind of laugh in the face of all of kind of what's going on and it really helps you to understand things so much better and just how human this play is like it's 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 the characters are so real yeah, this play was written 25 years ago and its central protagonist is a gay man with hiv and he gains access to the gods you know when when drama first started with the greeks conversations between gods and and men were part of the course and then we lost that, you know. And then in 1990, we have this play by Tony Kushner with a queer HIV-infected character who gets this Jesus-like status of, of being the prophet who gains access to heaven and is given this prophecy by an angel. And there's something so extraordinarily sort of subversive and sort of rebellious about that. I mean, that's 25 years ago. And you kind of think, yes, we've come a long way within the gay rights movement, but actually also not you know, we're still having the same arguments. We're still talking about the same things. And I think the character of Pryor Walter in Angels in America is kind of one of the flag the flag bearers of, of the gay rights movement kind of within the arts. Yeah. Mm. I'm genuinely bloody thrilled that this production is getting up. And I'm also quite staggered that it's getting up. When it was announced, I, uh, a friend of uh, Interstate contacted me saying, how are they doing this? How is, how is it independent company putting on this major work and uh, I, I would still like an answer to that question. <laughs> With a bunch of incredibly talented and committed actors and um, creatives and as Grant sort of said you know the, our, our process it's about expanding the audience's imagination and kind of giving them everything and giving them nothing uh, and by what I mean by that is there are still going to be moments of extraordinary magic you know things that are completely unexpected um, and we do I think achieve remarkable Remarkable um, feats of imagery within what we're doing. But at the same time, it's in 45 Downstairs, which, you know, this place set in New York in the 80s. One of, our, one of our springboards was a project called Pier 34, which happened in 1983, 1984, which is a group of artists who took over some abandoned buildings in New York and kind of filled them with the most extraordinary murals, graffiti paintings, sculptures. It only lasted a few months before being torn down. But this was at the beginning of the HIV epidemic, and most of those artists died. And their work was destroyed when the buildings were torn down. And that was our springboard for the design of this production. Um, There have been many, many very clean, pristine and polished versions of Angels in America. This is about New York 1980. This this is not a glamorous place, New York 1980. Another big key thing was the documentary Paris is Burning. You know, a wonderful, wonderful documentary about the sort of drag balls that emerged from that time, RuPaul and all of that. So that was kind of our springboard into the creation of this production and how we did it as an independent company. Create absolute magic with, with very, very little... Yeah, and so and such a thrill. I mean, it, it, we're in 
production week right now. We were teching a particular scene yesterday and the magic that was created took me by utter surprise. Like, and I was on stage and I just started laughing because I was like, this is effing unreal. <laughs> like, and I just, was, I just couldn't help it. I was just so lifted and I'm just like, I am so happy to be a part of this moment and how the hell did we create this? And I think there's so much heart, so much soul, so much kind of blind faith and a bit of stupidity that has kind of brought <laughs> us all together and it's, it's just working and it's really kind of lifting us and that's what we're going to give to audiences and yeah. I, they're going to meet us halfway yeah. for sure. And it's a lovely run. I mean, we get a full three week, three and a half weeks, oh, four weeks yeah. with an audience. You know, I cannot wait to kind of put it out there and, um, yeah, begin the conversation with them. We're really excited to share it. Tony Kushner's Angels in America, a gay fantasia on national themes, presented uh, as part one, Millennium Approaches, and part two, Perestroika, is on at 45 downstairs, 45 Flinders Lane, Melbourne. Chookers, gentlemen. Thank you. <laughs> uh, if you want more info about the show, uh, jump online, www.angelsinamerica.com.au and really, really looking forward to it. Guys, thanks for coming in. Thanks, thanks Richard. Three. Triple. Uh, and I'm joined now in the studio by Mr. Simon Abrahams, who's the creative director and CEO of the Melbourne Fringe Festival. Richard, good morning. Hello, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm I'm actually having a really good morning. So I've had some fun conversations, some uh, listened to some some interesting tunes, and uh, I always enjoy catching up with you. Here we are. So uh, the 2017 Melbourne Fringe program was launched a couple of weeks ago. It's a bumper edition. I know it never. It just keeps seems to keep growing and growing. Is endless growth a good thing for a festival? Look, I don't think endless growth is is a good thing. I mean, ultimately, bigger is not our uh, is not our aim. But um, we have uh, you know jam packed full of quality, Richard. That's what I like to hear. Now the the blurb on the program guide this year: everything is art. That's an interesting marketing line. Look, I think for us, you know, at Melbourne Fringe, of course, we're completely open access, which means that anyone can register. So I guess we wanted to make the provocation, which is to say anyone that wants to put anything forward is welcome. So for us, we're saying uh, any any person who wants to uh, put forward their art as art is welcome in our world. So when it comes to Melbourne Fringe time, everything is art. Now, one of the things that I love about Fringe as you've just uh, suggested, is that everybody can enter. And it means that you get an enormous range of styles of work. Uh, you will see established artists going out on a limb and doing and just going, stuff it, I'm best known as a circus performer. I'm going to write and stage my first solo cabaret show or something like that. So there's that breadth to it uh, and a breadth of ideas as well. There's a real sense that the creativity that bubbles away in Melbourne all year round really kind of comes to the surface during Fringe. That's it. And I think there is that, that sense of, of risk-taking. And, and one of the things I love about Melbourne Fringe is that people don't seem to graduate from it. You know, sometimes at other Fringe festivals you get that sense that people are with it for a time and then it's some kind of pathway to something else. The thing I love about Melbourne Fringe is artists at the top of their game are still coming back time and time again, you know. So this year we have artists, I don't know, like, you know, Tony Martin and Geraldine Quinn, you know, are, are, are putting on a show or Lawrence Mooney or, you know, artists kind of 
of um, you know more Davy at the top of their game coming back and and still seeing Melbourne Fringe as, as a valid part of their career, which I love. And even something like Fringe Furniture, I believe you've got Fringe Furniture alumni coming back this year. Yeah, that's right. It's number thirty one in uh, of our Fringe Furniture exhibition. So we've been doing it for thirty one consecutive years, and um, absolutely, there there are people from our past coming back and a whole lot of newbies as well. Now. One of the things that also fascinates me about any Fringe Festival, Sydney Fringe is uh, kicking off from tomorrow, for example, and that's going to be a good example of what I'm about to talk about, is the way that it allows us to identify some of the key concerns and thematic interests. Uh, It's a a photo of the zeitgeist and it tells us what artists are thinking about and how they're representing that in their work. What are some of the, the main themes, culturally and artistically, that have emerged from the Fringe program this year. Yeah, so it's, it is absolutely fascinating and it is that thing about open access that you just see what rises to the top. Look, there's a, there's a lot actually this year. I mean, I, I'd say, interestingly, there's um, a, quite a few works about kind of mental health um, in there. There's definitely, I think there's five works in the festival that um, celebrate the transgender community or, or are by trans artists, um, which is um, a, a really significant growth for us as well. There's some really overtly political work in the festival, which doesn't surprise me given the kind of terrifying state of politics at the moment. Um, And I guess following on from that, there there is also quite a bit of work that explores kind of gender and and sexuality as well. So um, I I think they're probably some of the the main interests that seem to be bubbling up to the surface at the moment. uh, Can you give us examples of how artists are exploring some of those themes, for example? Yeah. Sure. So, um, you know, so, yeah, se- sex and sexuality, for example, always seems to be a, a kind of really interesting focus for the festival. I mean, this year I think there's, uh, I think off the top of my head, there are ten shows that in some way celebrate the vagina, which I just love. I think there's, um, you know, so that and, and in a really strong, interesting feminist way. So there's a work, for example, that takes place in a sex shop that is a, a feminist work that... that um, uh, is about kind of sensuality. There is um, a work uh, by the fabulous Fringe Wives Club called Glittery Clittery. Great show I saw at the comedy festival and loved it. Yeah. Um, the vagina monologues but performed by Deferent Theatre, so a deaf theatre company. That's right. It's completely in Auslan um, and uh, totally um, accessible for hearing audiences as well. Now, one of the other opportunities that Fringe does is... It, is also an encouragement and incentive for artists from interstate to come to Melbourne and present their work. Now, as much as I love the fact that so much of the Fringe program is by and for Melbourne, it's also a great opportunity to see some acclaimed works from interstate, which the the, the risks of travel and the costs of touring independent shows means that we don't often get to see that kind of interstate cultural exchange. But the fact that the Fringe has its Fringe-ready, uh, tour-ready awards means that we can see works from Perth, for example, so Jeffrey J. Fowler. With the one, yeah. Yep, uh, now, uh, and Jeffrey has been doing some... Some people may remember Fagstag, which he co-wrote and performed a couple of years ago. So this is uh, his new work, which is a gay man writing a musical study of a heterosexual relationship. That's right, it is. Um, uh, but he's uh, he's written it. It's won an award in um, Perth and, and, and was kind of the hit of the Perth Fringe earlier this year and we've brought that over. The spectacular Betty Grumble um, in her, with her show Sex Clown Saves the World is uh, coming over. We picked that up at the Adelaide Fringe 
Um, Betty Grumble is, of course, a, a New South Wales-based artist who's uh, heading up to the Brisbane Festival just before she comes down to us as well. Um, and you also bring work over from across the ditch. Yeah, we have a work called The Basement Tapes, which has come over from the New Zealand Fringe, um, which is a fantastic kind of spooky, interesting story with a twist. And actually this time we have, um, we've got 35 works that come from overseas this year, um, which is a... a Massive jumps, about three times the number of international works compared to last year. What's driven that increase? Look, I think we've done a bit of work. Um, certainly I've, I've just come back from Edinburgh. I was at Brighton Fringe this time last year. Um, we've spent a bit of time kind of encouraging international registrations, but I think also just the, the growth and reputation of, of Melbourne Fringe has grown. Um, so there's work from New Zealand, from Japan. We've got two works from Indonesia, from Hong Kong, um, of course from the USA, from the UK, from Canada. So there's, um, yeah, uh, I, I think 11 different countries are represented this year. Right. Now, one of the challenges that some fringe festivals have been having over the last couple of years, and we've seen this at Fringe World in Perth, at Adelaide Fringe, at Edinburgh Fringe, is uh, the complaints that the festivals are getting too big, that uh, artists are suffering, and uh, so that it's so it becomes more about marketing the fringe rather than promoting the artists involved. And certainly, I know artists who said, "I'm never going to Festival X or Festival Y again." What does Melbourne Fringe do to make sure that that doesn't happen here? Look, it's a really good question and a really good point. We talk about it a lot. I mean, it's just about the the sheer size of those festivals. The beautiful thing about Melbourne Fringe, this year's festival has 440 events. Um, I think Adelaide Fringe has about 1,500 and I've just come back from Edinburgh, which has um, 3,000. So um, the, the wonderful thing, I guess, that will always save Melbourne Fringe from the fate that those festivals have kind of fallen into is, of course, our wonderful friends at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, um, who we have a great partnership with. But because those other festivals don't have a a comedy festival in their city, they've kind of become a de facto comedy festival. Um, Melbourne Fringe is full of comedy. There's lots of great big names in the festival, but they just don't saturate the festival in the same way that those kind of more commercial festivals do. Um, and, and in Melbourne, I guess some of those artists come in in April and, and be part of the comedy festival. So we've got a, a smattering of some of those names, but for us, I guess we always champion the little guy at Melbourne Fringe. That's really what we're about. I'm speaking with Simon Abrahams, the creative director and CEO of the Melbourne Fringe Festival, which is running from the 14th of September until the 1st of October. And more info at www.melbournefringe.com.au. If people want just a... I don't know, if, if they, they're nervous about dipping a toe into the fringe water, they don't know what's lurking in there, it might be, I don't know, a, a fluorescent pink gay lobster, it might be kind of a, an antagonistic shark, or it might be just a slightly undercooked show that will leave a bad taste in their mouth. What's the best way for them to dip a toe into a water into a safe and comfortable environment, Simon? Look, Melbourne Fringe doesn't recommend a safe and comfortable environment, so I would say uh, it is the chance to, to jump in and take a risk. I guess my answer to that would be a third of the festival is free. There's um, some really extraordinary works that have been made by the festival, all of which are free. Um, there's a work called Pivot, which will uh, take over Federation Square for the length of the festival and then come back uh, for the final day in the city of Stonington at Chapel of Chapel. There's a spectacular work called uh, Congress being made by all the Queen's men which will close the festival at Northcote Town Hall. There's a work called the Children's Party that um, is at the uh, North Melbourne Town Hall Arts Hub. So there's some works that have been made by the festival or commissioned by the festival that are all free. They're a great way to uh, dip 
your toe in and see and then take that as a starting point to jump in headfirst and, and take a massive risk. You can also, uh, if you go into Fed Square, to play on Pivot, uh, created by the wonderful Tim and Maddie. Yeah. Uh, you can uh, check out the Spotlight stage where there are fringe artists kind of showcasing their ways, get a taste of what's on. I recommend going to the Fringe Club uh, and having a few drinks, eavesdropping on conversations to get a sense of what people are talking about, catching some excerpts from acts on the main stage there as well and then maybe just come up and ask somebody like me or someone like Simon kind of or an artist you know get them to recommend a work to you. Absolutely, yeah. The Fringe Club's at uh, Arts House at North Melbourne Town Hall. It runs for the length of the festival um, and it is a spectacular, fun, celebratory play space where there's excerpts from the festival on display, there's big themed nights, um, there's a bar um, and, as you say, there's a great kind of community feel where people are just talking about what shows they've seen and what's hot right now and, and there's, uh, I think, uh, over 60 shows um, in the Fringe Hub which is all around in buildings all around the club so it's definitely the place to come and find out what to see very much looking forward to diving into this year's melbourne fringe festival running from the 14th of september to the 1st of october i think i've already booked my first 20 shows but i've given myself plenty of wiggle room to book another 20 more so uh, and this year i'm determined to get a broad sampling of every possible art form. Bit of circus, bit of live art, bit of cabaret, bit of comedy, bit of dance, bit of visual art. How strong is the visual art program this year? Look, as always, the visual arts program's growing. There's uh, uh, galleries um, right across the city and, of course, um, the Fringe Furniture Exhibition that uh, Melbourne Fringe has run for 31 years is the, the kind of big key visual project, as, uh, as always, for 31 years. Lovely. For more information, pick up a copy of the Fringe Guide from your traditional, familiar local cafe, bookstore, laundromat, wherever uh, you regularly pick up brochures and flyers from. Uh, It's yellow, it's very visible uh, and uh, check out the festival website www.melbournefringe.com.au The festival runs from the 14th of September to the 1st of October. In the coming weeks I look forward to chatting to many fringe artists on this show. Simon Abrahams, thanks for joining us. Thanks Richard. Three Triple A couple of weeks ago, during the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, uh, Melbourne International Comedy, Melbourne International Film Festival, Richard, get your festivals right, just because there's 400 of them in Victoria, there's no reason to confuse them all. So a couple of weeks ago, during MIF, I had the pleasure of seeing the English drama God's Own Country, written and directed by Francis Lee. Uh, it's screening at the Sun Theatre Yarraville, Palace Brighton Bay, Palace Kino, Palace Como, Hawthorne Lido, Elstonwick Classic and Cinema Nova. It's something of a I think it's a bloody good film and quite a remarkable film it's a debut feature uh, it's been described as the English Brokeback Mountain which I think does it a bit of a disservice but it's beautifully shot uh, it's about the slow unfolding of a relationship between a young alcoholic farmhand who is quite emotionally closed off from the world uh, and he begins to fall in love with a young Romanian farm worker who comes to work on his dad's sheep farm. It's told very visually without a lot of dialogue and it manages to avoid so many of the cliches and tropes uh, that exist in queer cinema. I found it enthralling and moving uh, and uh, have already seen it twice and I will probably see it again. During MIF, I had the pleasure of catching up with filmmaker Francis Lee uh, and we had a bit of a chat about God's Own Country. 
Let's begin with the somewhat tiresome comparison the film has had to Brokeback Mountain. Uh, for me, that's like comparing Star Wars to Alien. They're tonally different, dramatically different, but they both have aliens in them and they're set in space. Or, I don't know, maybe it's like comparing Casablanca to Romeo and Juliet because they're both uh, involving star-crossed lovers. Your film and Brokeback Mountain are queer films, significant films, but tonally very different. Are you sick already of the comparisons to Brokeback Mountain? Um, no. I mean, I have to fess up and say I've only seen Brokeback Mountain once, and that was when it first came out. And I found it an incredibly beautiful film, and I was very moved by those central performances. Um, this is my first film. Ang Lee probably made Brokeback Mountain, I don't know, halfway through his career. Um, so it feels an incredible honour to be compared to somebody um, who was at the top of his game making cinema. But I think, like you, I think the films are very different. Um, you know, Brokeback, the, the two characters can't be together because of society. Um, they have to get married to women and have children and have this secret life. God's Own Country is much more about a boy who doesn't have those problems, but actually has uh, such emotional repression that he can't open up enough to love and be loved. So his journey is much more a personal journey. In terms of making the film, why begin with this film, this story and this setting in particular as your debut feature? So I grew up on those hills in West Yorkshire, the Pennines. Um, my dad is still a sheep farmer there. I now live back there. And I, I left, though, when I was around 20 to move to London and go to college. But for the whole time I was away from there, that, that landscape just felt to have totally got underneath my skin. And it felt to have really informed who I was, um, you know, emotionally as well as physically. And so... When I started to think about making film maybe four or five years ago, it felt like a, a, a very rich place. It felt like a place I wanted to explore, like my own feelings about it. Um, and then I guess at the time I was also kind of thinking about that, that, that idea of falling in love. Um, from a personal perspective, and how difficult it is to make yourself vulnerable enough to love and be loved. And, and those kind of two things just collided, really, and just seemed to make sense. It's certainly fascinating watching the film and seeing, essentially, uh, Johnny being exposed to the beauty of the landscape that he lives in, which he's perhaps blind to, uh, by Jorge. It's that classic thing of seeing the world through someone else's eyes, which is a key part to, to any relationship. Yeah, no, that was super important. So the way in which, uh, you know, myself and the brilliant DP Joshua James Richards um, formulated the look and the feel of the film is we, we knew we were never going to see the landscape. I knew I never wanted to see a big wide shot of the landscape. That's not how I'd seen it growing up there. You know, to me, it was a cold place. It was wet. It was miserable. You didn't go out for a walk for pleasure. And you certainly didn't hang around and look at views. Um and so the, the first time we see the landscape, really, is, as you say, when Johnny sees it for the first time, when he's, when he's opened up to it and he begins to realise that this is actually a place he loves and this is a place he wants to stay. Um, and that starts to feel possible. 
Now, in speaking of the look of the film and the way that you're showing us the landscape, clearly that was written into the screenplay almost from the very beginning, that how we would see the land, uh, so details of... Um, of wool, for example, caught on a wire or those intimate little moments that you have to be familiar with to see. I wonder also, did you write your screenplay almost uh, like a choreographer would uh, kind of notate dance work, that the gestures between the men, the way they touch, the, the glances between them, to what degree were they written into the screenplay from the very beginning? That's a really interesting way of putting it. I've not heard it put that way before. And it is absolutely right. The, the, the screenplay is really detailed. Every look, every gesture, every moment, every touch is, is written, um, in, in great detail. Um, you know, there's not a lot of dialogue in the script, uh, cause there's not a lot of dialogue in the film, but, um, but all the moments are there and all, and all those, um, vignettes i guess of of the texture of the place that as you say the wool on the barbed wire the 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 uh, straw bale blowing in the wind all of that is very much dictated and also the sound of the place is written in terms of making a story like this why uh, a queer love story yeah, again, that's a really good question. I never, I just never thought thought about it being between a man and a woman. It just felt really natural to me that it was two two lads, and um, and I guess that, that it brings a different dynamic in terms of masculinity, in terms of expression, um, and how men um, communicate with each other, maybe. But it just never entered my head that it would be a man and a woman. It, it was always going to be a two men. And did you also envisage from the very beginning that the film would be shot sequentially? No, that that's something. So what I try and do um, is separate the jobs. So as a writer, I try and be the writer. And as the director, I try and be the director. Um, and so I didn't have my director's head on, particularly when I was writing it. Um, so once the script had been done and it had, it had got the money together from the BFI and we were moving forward to shooting it and I became the director, if you like, um, that's when I started to think about shooting it chronologically and for a couple of reasons, mainly to, to really support the, the, the story and the performances. I felt that whatever I could do to make the acting the best it possibly could be to give the actors every opportunity to really deliver something special i would do and the and the film felt like building blocks each scene felt to impact on the one that was coming after it and so i thought it would really help secondly what i wanted to do was um i wanted to very subtly show that shift that seasonal shift between the end of winter and the beginning of spring. So you, so the colour palette could gently shift as the story moved on to reflect this burgeoning relationship between the two boys. Um, yeah, and, and I think it really helped. I think it really, really worked on, on those levels. And talk to us about uh, casting the, the actors that you found. I know, for example, that uh, Alec, who plays Jorge, uh is actually uh, Romanian. So uh, you obviously didn't know him and weren't familiar with his work. So it must have been quite a difficult process, not only finding actors who were right for the roles, but actors who had the right chemistry together as well. 
Yeah, it was a long process. I didn't know either of the boys at all or, or their work. I didn't know Josh either. Um, and so I worked with casting directors, one in London and one in Bucharest in Romania. And, um, and Josh was a revelation, really, because he wasn't in the UK when I was initially casting. He was, he was in Corfu uh, shooting a TV series. So I didn't get to meet him, but I sent him a couple of scenes to put on a tape and send back for me to watch. And so I got this tape from this actor I knew nothing about. And um, first of all, I was utterly convinced he came from the north somewhere because his accent was so good. And secondly, he, he kind of delivered this incredibly emotionally repressed anger angry reading which felt really on point um and so i was convinced that's who he was really and then i met him he came he was back in london two weeks later and i met him and in walks the most beautiful funny light um smiley boy who's from the south of england um from a very you know very respectable well-to-do town in the south of england and, and and then when I started to work with him, I realized very quickly he was a transformative actor. And that really turned me on. I love coming at things from a, a character perspective and to building this immersive world of the character. Um, so he was great. And then um, I went to Bucharest and met a lot of Romanian boys who were all wonderful and very committed. Um, and then we had Alec, who basically, again, very focused, very intelligent, and just understood the essence of that character. And as long as I knew he understood the essence, I knew we could build on it. But as you say, this film was going to live or die by that central relationship and the chemistry. So I made a short list of three Romanian actors. I'd cast Josh and uh, I flew three Romanian actors over to the UK and we did what, what they call a chemistry test, which is basically Josh and one of the Romanian boys in a room for a couple of hours working on a couple of scenes to see how they get on. And Alec was already my favourite. And so I knew that I was, you know, I was really hopeful that he would work out and it would work between him and Josh. But what actors tend to do in a room when the director is there is they, they, you know, they perform getting on because that's their job. They want to get the job. So after we'd worked on the scenes for, for, for an hour or so, I sent them both off for a cup of tea in the cafe and I hid around the corner and watched them and they were getting on like a house on fire so I knew they weren't pretending just for me um so yeah I was I was so thankful because they were both my favorites and and luckily they were the ones who worked the best together now often with actors it's said and it's something that frustrates me about uh, actors taking on queer roles it's particularly common in the US but uh People comment on, oh, how brave they are to play those roles. I think these actors were brave for a different reason. Uh, rolling around in the mud in the middle of winter, you, you ask a lot of your cast. Yeah, well, you know, I love um, authentic, truthful stories. And for me, that that scene felt very truthful and authentic. And it felt like that's what those two characters would do. But, you know, from very early on, from, from the first moment I met actors, I was very upfront and very clear um, about what actually, yes, they are going to have to do what's written in the script. Um, but, but to make sure that they knew I would always protect them. I would always make them safe and they were always going to be my focus. Um, so they could then deliver those very vulnerable, you know, scenes, those scenes that really test an actor. The film's had a very positive response, a remarkably positive response. Not uh, often somebody's first feature film can vanish without a trace. 
what do you hope that the film will do for your career and for the career of the other people that you're working with, the actors, your director of cinematography and so forth? I mean, yeah, I think I come last in that list. Um, for my actors, for, for Josh and Alec, I really hope this is an incredible launch pad for what I hope and I think will be incredible careers that they'll have. Um, uh, I, they're, they're not just extraordinary actors. They're extraordinary people and I love them dearly, so I want, I want the very, very best for them. Um, Joshua James Richards um, is a phenomenal phenomenal cinematographer and has already, you know, um, he shot three features including God's Own Country and the other two. One premiered at Sundance and went to Cannes and the other one just premiered at Cannes this year called The Rider, which picked up the award in director's fortnight. So I hope that obviously his work continues to get the praise that it deserves. Not too much because I'd like him to come and work with me again. Um, so I don't really want him to disappear and go and do a Marvel film or something. But um, yeah, no. I, I, and for me, uh, you know, I mean... I. I guess what this film has um, what has allowed this film it has opened the door to making another film, and and that I will be always truly thankful for. But I, but my ambition really is that that people come and see the film and um, and take something personal away from it and and find some resonance in the story for for themselves maybe. It's clearly resonating with audiences, not just here in Australia, but internationally. Uh, and those, I think there would be some people who would be expecting uh, a backlash from the film, perhaps from uh, some of your fellow Yorkshiremen who'd be uh, not only a cliched as being dour and, uh, uh, and grim, but perhaps uh, because they live in a regional area, maybe homophobic as well. But I understand the response has been anything but homophobic or, or um, unhappy from people from Yorkshire. No, completely. It's a really interesting question. Um, you know, a couple of times, not many, but a couple of times I've been asked the question about the reality of the situation. You know, could two people in a same-sex relationship live and work within a rural working-class community? Which always makes me wonder what they think that the people who live in those communities think or, or who they are. You know, in my experience, there there's never been any issue. Um, and the people who've seen the film, the film hasn't come out in the U doesn't come out in the UK until the first of September. Um, but there, there was a screening at the Edinburgh International Film Festival, and quite a few of the farmers who worked on the film came up to see it, and their response was incredible. You know, they were deeply moved by it, and they loved the depiction of that community and that landscape on screen. Um, and so I'm very hopeful that the people of Yorkshire will, will celebrate it. I hope they will celebrate it as well. God's Own Country is certainly, for me, the, uh, the most moving and fulfilling drama I've seen at the cinema this year. Francis Lee, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.